Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father, and if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. All right, good to see all of you guys this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and get them out, or uh, if you got your phone. We also have Bibles out in the lobby at the welcome desk, so if you don't have a Bible, feel free to run out there, grab one. It's yours to keep. And uh, we are going to be in Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8 in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, story of Israel. So go ahead and turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. You know, about a year ago, somebody in our church had an image as they were praying for somebody who wasn't yet a believer in Jesus. And the image that they had for this person was this. They said, you know, life without Jesus is like riding a bicycle without tires on it. Every bump in the road you really feel. All the rough parts of the pavement, they jar you. And when you start following Jesus, it's not like you don't have bumps in the road, you don't have issues in life. It's that you feel them differently because of what you have in your life. You put tires on, so to speak, and you began to go through life differently. And I simply want to ask you this morning this this question. As a result of the gospel, has the mood of your life changed? As a result of the gospel, has the mood of your life changed? You know, um, Walter Hooper, C.S. Lewis's private secretary, reflected on the impression that Lewis had on him once. And he said this, he said, C.S. Lewis struck me as the most thoroughly converted man I ever met. Christianity for him was never a separate department of life. His whole vision of life was such that the natural and supernatural seemed inseparably combined. Thoroughly converted. His entire mood, if you will, changed. You know, one of our core values at the church is that we are a people of hope and joy. And so specifically in our vision series today, I want to talk about joy. I want to talk about joy. See, joy is almost like a light on the dashboard in your car. Its presence in your life speaks to something deeper, more profound that you believe that's part of your internal working system. But the absence of joy speaks to the same. A Catholic theologian, Peter Kreeft, here's what he said. He said, fearlessness comes from heavenly joy. Joyless people are weak, weary, and apathetic. Bowled over by little things, especially personal relationships. They interpret teasing as an insult, play as irresponsibility, and disagreement as personal attack. And so I felt this need this week to do a slight tune-up to the engine. If your joy light is flashing, I want to do a little theological brush-up this morning, and my goal is for you to be strengthened by joy. That's my goal. Are you ready for that? Okay, good. This side's not ready, this side's ready. Okay. All right, I'll just be facing over here a lot more. Okay. 
Uh, Nehemiah chapter eight, let's look down our Bibles, verse one. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, think Torah, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. Verse two, so on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. All of Israel gathered together. Would you read us the Torah? We haven't heard it in years. Would you read us the Torah? He begins to read. Skip down to verse six. Ezra praised the Lord the great God, and all the people lifted up their hands and responded, amen, amen. They bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground as they hear the design of life. They hear the purpose of life, what it means to be connected with Yahweh all through the Torah. Skip down again to verse nine. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord, your God, do not mourn or weep. For all the people had began weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Let's all just say that. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Verse 11, the Levites calmed all the people, saying, be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Here's the context of this passage. Israel is coming back out of exile. Remember, there's a couple different times where Israel is literally kidnapped off of their land, taken to another land, ruled over by another uh, nation, once by the Assyrians, once by the Babylonians. And so you imagine they're coming back to their land. They're coming back to their old homes. They're going, is grandma's house still there? You know, they're, they're, they're like, what do we used to do? <laughs> like, I don't even know how to be here anymore. I wonder if that river still exists where we used to swim as kids. So they're coming back into the land, and you have to imagine how jarring that would be. Now, what ends up happening is that they're not just returning to their land physically and to what it means to be the nation of Israel physically. They are also returning to what it means to be the people of God in a spiritual way. And so the Torah is being read. Ezra begins to read the Torah. He begins to read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy in front of all of the people. I think we got a great iPhone snap of him doing this. Yep, it's one of the first iPhones, so that's why it's so grainy. But he reads the Torah to all the people, and there's a big problem when he does it. In the reading of the Torah, in the story of Yahweh and the world, there's a gap and the gap is an eyesore. There's a gap between the way that the people of God have been living, even what's probably led them into exile, and the vision for what God has for his people. There's a gap. And so what happens when you see the gap, when you see this is who I am and that's what I should be, or this is who I am and that's what I could be, what happens when you witness the gap? Sorrow ensues, weeping, Oh, if we had not wasted our lives, if we had just obeyed the Torah, if we had just followed your law, God, we wouldn't have had all this pain in our lives. What have we 
done. But what does God say here? Stop all of that. Knock it off. Don't mourn. What? He says, this is a holy day. You're like, yeah, that's why we're mourning. He goes, no, 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 it's a holy day. You thought holy meant somber and stiff. No, rejoice, eat, celebrate. In other words, what God is saying here in this passage is enter into my character towards you by getting generous with the people around you. What does it say? Go, enjoy choice food, sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. In other words, experience my generosity and get generous. When you are confronted with the gap of your life, God's response to you, his word to you is, you should get happy. You should rejoice because that's just how good God is. That's just how much he can take care of things. That's grace. The correct response to seeing God accurately, to seeing the gap, is conviction that leads to joy. That's what it is. Because it is the joy of the Lord that makes you strong. In Hebrew, actually, it can be read here, the rejoicing of God is your defense. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The rejoicing of God is your defense. What is being said here? What's being said here is this. You are strong, you are protected, defended to the degree that you understand God's disposition towards you. You don't understand God's disposition towards you, you will be mourning when he's rejoicing. You will fail to live in season, you will miss out on what he wants to do. This is about alignment. Bringing our response to the gap into the same place that his response is to our gap. He's rejoicing over you, and that's where the real strength is found. His joy about you, that's the only place where you're gonna find defense in this life. See, here's what God knows, and he knows this for the people here, but he also knows it for us today. He knows what will make you strong, and it isn't your ability to recognize how wrong you are and stay there. That's, we have this thing where we think that the more introspective we get, the more we become masters of our lives. I'm not designed to be the master of my life. I have a king already. My design is to keep my eyes on him, to, to align my emotions, my response to what his response, his emotions, his mood is about me. It's your ability to allow the presence of God to fill you with the joy that he has about you even when you're seeing the gap between who you are and who you could be. So much so that it affects the mood of your life. His rejoicing becomes your joy. <laughs> see, what I want you to see is that we have a rejoicing God, so we have a joyful theology. Because we have a rejoicing God, the rejoicing of God is your strength. Because we have a rejoicing God, we then have a joyful theology. And I can tell by just the mood of the room right now, you guys don't believe this. You're gonna believe it by the end of the day. We're gonna do some theology, some study, and then you're gonna believe it. This side of the room's ready? Is this side of the room ready? Yeah. Thank some of you. See, <laughs> I think that many of us, we don't have a joyful theology because we don't understand how good God is. We, most of us, have an incessant voice of guilt in our lives. I talked about this last week, so I won't go into it too much. Uh, but we have this voice inside of all of us that reminds us of the gap, reminds us of who we are and who we should be. 
And it's the thing, this voice of guilt is the thing that is driving you to accomplish <laughs> in many ways. It's the thing that's driving you to get accolades. It's driving you to get the applause of others to be seen in a certain way because you'll do anything. All of humans will do anything to stop looking at the gap, to get rid of the gap. And you know what this incessant voice of guilt is? It's the voice of fear and lack motivating your life. Here's what one of the desert mothers from the fifth century said. She said this, when the devil tempts us to be proud, he hides our sin from us. But when he tempts us to lose hope, he places our sins before us and suggests, since you've committed all these sins, what forgiveness will there be? You ever felt that? It's the same voice. It's the voice of the gap. And you know what it really is? It's the blood of Abel. Genesis chapter four says this, now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother, Abel, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied, am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Can you hear it? The blood speaks. Why did Cain kill Abel? He was afraid. I won't be accepted. He was jealous. And Abel's blood speaks, and here's what Abel's blood speaks over all of humanity. Everyone born into this world, this broken world, deals with the fear of Cain and deals with the, the, the tension of acting on that fear. Every one of us. And so this cry, Abel's blood, is, is still a problem. It's the unease, the, the feeling that all is not right with you and the world, and the fear that comes as a result. And you know, as I thought about this this week, you know what's so interesting is so much of the New Testament is not only about the forgiveness of sins. We, most of us in this room, we all believe Jesus came to forgive sins. Everybody would be like, yes, amen. amen. So much of the New Testament is not only about the forgiveness of sins, it is about the removal of your worry about sin as well. About the mood that your sin has caused in your life. The guilty conscience is a huge concern of the author of Hebrews. Go ahead and turn to the right in your Bible quite a bit to Hebrews chapter nine. Hebrews chapter nine. I wanna do a little bit of a study of this in Hebrews, and I wanna show you the joyful theology that we have. See, in Hebrews, the author is continually pointing to the old sacrificial system. Think the, the Levitical uh, priestly code, the, um, the sacrifices that people would make to atone for sin with animals. And what he is saying, the, uh, the, the author of Hebrews is constantly saying that doesn't fully cleanse the conscience. It, is co it covered sin for a time, but it couldn't get rid of the mood that sin caused, the worry that sin caused. So here's what he says in, uh, in Hebrews 9, verse 9. Hebrews 9, verse 9. This is an illustration for the present time. He's been talking about this illustration. We'll get to more of that in a minute. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices, think animal sacrifices, being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. 
So think the pigeons, the bulls, the goats that were being killed to atone for sin. There's a problem that the author of Hebrews sees. And the problem is this. It never touched the conscience. It never touched the mood of the worshiper. It's a problem. This is a problem. So then the author begins to compare the sacrifices of animals to that of the sacrifice of Jesus. Look down verse 13 of chapter nine. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of the heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. Verse 14. How much more then will the blood of Christ who, the, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God cleanse our what? Consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. <laughs> Do you see what's being said? It is not just about your sin being done away with, it's about how you think because your sin has been done away with. It's not just about you being forgiven for sin, it's about did that change your mood? <laughs> did that change the way that you go through life? Do you have tires on? The author continues in the next chapter, flip over to Hebrews chapter 10, verse one. Here's what it says. The law is only a shadow of good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect. Everybody say perfect. Those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers... Here's what, a here's what a perfect sacrifice would do. For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. That would, that's what a perfect sacrifice would do. Verse three, but those sacrifices, those animal sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. See, if the sacrifices of animals could have made you perfect, or they could have, if, if they couldn't make you perfect, what is being perfect? What is being perfect? Perfect is when you forget about your sin. Perfect is when you live with such a degree that your sin no longer affects your conscience the way that it once did before Christ. If they could really change your mood, they would have stopped being offered, but instead, what all attempts to cleanse the outside, what all attempts to cleanse uh, you from sin outside of Jesus do is they put before you a reminder of your sin. Examples of the, of the gap as the blood drips down the throat of the goat. It's, there's the gap. There's the blood of Abel. Abel calls out guilty. Look down in your Bibles, verse 12. But when this priest, think Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Look, there was a sacrifice, it was Jesus. And he was such a complete sacrifice that you don't need to worry about sin anymore. It affects your mood. Why? Because he's made you perfect. Now the Greek word for perfect here is to accomplish a goal. It's to complete something, or in this case, to complete someone. Having your conscience clear, that's what it means to be complete. Guilt makes you weak and unconfident. But watch what sort of mood you're supposed to have as a result. Verse 19, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have confidence. Guilt, no confidence. 
A clean conscience, confidence. We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way opened for us through the, the curtain that is his body. Verse 21, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. The mood change, the, the guilty conscience being cleansed, what does it do? It brings about confidence to enter the most holy place. You have the same rights daily as the high priest in Israel had yearly. You have the same rights daily that the high priest of Israel had yearly to enter the most holy place, to come in full assurance. Every morning I, um, I, I have a chair that I go sit in and I read and I think and pray. And there's been this new habit that we've developed where my wife will go get our daughter up and I can hear, because her house is small, I can hear all the way from her room just pitter-patter, 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 pitter-patter. I know she's coming, she's coming. I'm like, I better finish up reading. Um, and she comes, turning around the corner, she comes to the, to the edge of the door and she sees me and she just goes, ah! every morning, so excited. Ah! And she comes running to me and I pick her up and she hugs me. One of those hugs that she just like squeezes, you know, everything out of me. It's so good, it's so wonderful. And every morning, why does she do that? She's confident that I'm rejoicing about her in the same way that she's rejoicing about me. I'm a dad. This is what dads do. This is the kind of dad that you have. The rejoicing of the Lord is your strength. Do you believe that? The rejoicing of the Lord is your strength. A, 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 a guilt-free conscience to boldly enter the most holy place, to run in, to throw yourself on him. You have access to the rejoicing presence of God, and that's where real joy comes from. That's where real strength lies, all because of the blood of Jesus. And on that note, look what the author concludes in chapter 12. Jesus is our mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, notice this, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. There's not just one blood speaking over your life. There's another's blood speaking over your life. Jesus' blood is speaking a better word than Abel. Abel's blood says guilty. You should live in fear. You don't have enough killing someone else for your own advancement. Jesus' blood says there's so much abundance in heaven that there could be self-donation. Access to the presence of God. Adoption into his family. You now have a father. The blood is speaking, can you hear it? The blood is speaking, can you hear it? So here's a question. How do you get joy? Do you want joy? How do you get it? How do you get joy? Jesus, his blood has cleansed you, but you have a responsibility. This is how you get joy. You have to think saved. You have to think saved. Have you ever noticed how it, there's two different times in the New Testament where uh, there's armor that's described for the believer? And in both cases, the armor for the head, the helmet, is what? The helmet of salvation. 
the way that you think. You have to think saved. You need to remind yourself every day that your sins have been forgiven. You need to preach to your heart, to preach to your mind, the gap has been taken care of. Jesus' blood is speaking a better word than Abel's blood. If I'm guilty in my conscience, I haven't fully understood the sacrifice of Jesus. I haven't fully had the confidence to enter in. If, if you are putting distance between yourself and God because of the way that you feel, you are not living in congruence with the rejoicing Father. And so our responsibility, don't be surprised if you don't have joy, if you are allowing your sin to speak more about your identity than you are allowing his righteousness to speak about your identity. If we have a God who rejoices at the gap and our conviction, then we are a people who are more conscious of our righteousness than of our sin. That's a good question to ask yourself. Am I more conscious of my downfalls, my flaws, my sin, than, my, than I am of my righteous identity? Do I, do I, does my mind wander more frequently to what's wrong with me than to what's been made right with me? If that is the case, then you don't understand the gospel. You don't understand what Christ has actually done, what his sacrifice has actually meant. So let me ask you this this morning. Which blood are you listening to? Because at some level, whichever blood you're listening to, that will be your reality. That will be the mood of your soul. You've been given tires, but you can continue to ride your bike around without them. So let me summarize for a moment what we're, what we're learning so far. When you see the gap in your life between what you are and what you could be, get happy. <laughs> Remember that it was the blood of Jesus that made a life of intimacy with the rejoicing Father possible. It is his joy that is your strength. Let me ask you this. Is Jesus happier about you than you are about you? <laughs> okay. Oh, I'll just have to wait for next week for you guys to wake up. Is Jesus happier about you than you are about you? That's a good, that's a good question. I hope it's not yes. I hope that it's the same. <laughs> Pray for me, Jake. See, if you don't know that your conscience can be fully clear, you may not choose to boldly live in his presence. And, and if you do that, you will siphon yourself off from the joy of the Lord. This is about God's presence, about the access that we have, and your right to be in it. Here's what Clement says. If the presence of some good man always molds for the better the one who talks with him, how much more the person who was always in the uninterrupted presence of God. The person who believes that God is present everywhere and does not suppose God is shut up somewhere. Their lives become a festival, being persuaded that God is present on all sides. Their lives become a festival. <laughs> it's Nehemiah, do you see it? Go eat, go drink, go share. Our lives become a festival because in his presence there's fullness of joy. I want to end with an image for you. You know, there's a whole um, year right before Israel moved into the promised land, a whole year. They're just on the border of the promised land. They, they haven't entered it fully. They live an entire year looking at the promised land but not living it yet. And uh, in that year, the, the scriptures record that the manna stops, that God no longer feeds them with manna anymore. And it says, there's this, tiny line in, in, in the book of Joshua, that year, 
They ate the produce of the promised land. Why? It's kind of curious because you would think, you know, they're, so they're, they're, they're not in the promised land yet. <laughs> they're on the edge of the promised land. Why are they eating the, why are they going and getting food from the promised land and bringing it back? Why not eat the food of the land that they're in? I would put forth to you this morning that they were acquiring a palate for the land that they were destined for. They were acquiring the taste of their future. They were eating the fruit of their future. And may I argue this morning that that is exactly what you are designed to be to the world around you. Your life is designed to be fruit of humanity's future, fruit of your neighbor's future. As those who are sprinkled in the blood of Jesus, access to his presence, you are destined to be the fruit of humanity's future. There are people in your life who you know, people in your family, who are a living shell of who they were designed to be. And you, when you walk into their space, when you have the conversation with them, when, you're, when you sit alongside them at work, you are a taste of their future. They're on the edge of their promised land tasting what God has in store for their life as well the joy they see, the life with tires on, the daily festival, all from hosting the presence of God in your life. It's not about having the right words to say or the right theological arguments to make. It's about the people in your life going, could there be someone with real joy? Is it possible that somebody has more hope than the dismal life that I'm living in right now? And as they get around somebody who's hosting the rejoicing father in their life, who's been shaped by a joyful theology, it becomes evangelism just by your presence. Just by your presence. I had a friend of mine uh, call me this week and, and she explained to me that she has a friend of hers who's going through incredible pain, really, really difficult circumstance uh, in her family. Uh, super traumatic, just some really stuff. Really, really hard stuff. And, and she told me this. She said, you know, my friend called me. She's like, I don't know what to do. I wondered if we could pray or, you know, I just, I don't think I have the answers for her. She said, but my friend did say this. She said, you're the only person I know who could walk through what I'm going through with joy. You're the only person I know who has tires on their bike. It's not a small thing. Her friend is tasting the fruit of her own future when we live our lives strengthened by the joy of his presence, then our lives will make this appeal. Come taste the fruit of your future. Let's go ahead and stand together. Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website.